AVXL episode 194 was recorded on November 25th, 2022. Dolby Vision in the World Cup. This ain't 720p on ESPN, people. Projector bulbs, DIY ceiling mounts, some more thoughts on dumb TVs, comparing subwoofers. Let's talk CEA 2010 and so much more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a home theater audio question for us. And thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make this podcast possible, and we appreciate you. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Big thanks to everybody that made it into November's Hangout this week. Our next Hangout will be Thursday, December 22nd. The Hangouts, uh, by the way, they're a, a Patreon uh, reward for people at the 10 and $20 level. There are fewer of them than there are of everybody else. What we usually do is, is hang out for a while, and, and if uh, anybody that's in the group is okay with it, uh, half an hour into it, you usually open it up to other people that are available that evening. And we do that just uh, to, uh, you know, give everybody a chance to hang out. But uh, seriously, thank you to everyone that joined us. We really appreciate that. And it was good to talk to you. There was a lot of talk about projectors, oddly enough, and uh, electric vehicles and batteries. There was. And other things. <laughs> it was cool. Very cool. And snow and charging. And uh, it was a good conversation. So seriously, thank you to everybody that joined us. And again, uh, for our patrons, patreon.com slash AVXL. Our next hangout will be Thursday, December 22nd. And I'm going to have a Tom Merritt moment of clarity here. And I'm going to say that's patreon.com slash A-V-E-X-C-E-L, AVXL. Did I mention that I it was time to replace my projector bulb? No, at least I don't recall. So literally a couple days after I replaced my projector bulb, the alarm on my Epson, the visual, it's time to replace your bulb based on the number of hours it's been, the one in there has been going, uh, popped up. So I had to, you know, get the remote control and go into the panel and reset the timer, the counter uh, on that. But uh, Oh, you did swap it? I did swap it literally like last week. Okay. Uh, because I had noticed that it, it the, the brightness... I had a feeling that certain scenes in a certain HBO Max series involving a certain set of dragons would be a little less dark. A little less dark. They're pretty dark if I replace the bulb. I understand that. So you felt that uh, the warning was applicable when it gave it to you at that particular yes. time? That was a good good reminder? Yes. That's cool. That's good it to hear, a good actually. Reminder. It was good to hear. Uh, you know, it wasn't the massive. In I, I'm I'm torn, right? Because part of me is like, oh, I was hoping for a massive increase in brightness, but that of course would be that you had thrashed the bulb or even black level. Projector bulbs wear out over time, right? They get darker, right? And there's a reason I get excited about laser projectors with twenty thousand hour illumination devices built into them, i.e., lasers. True. A factory ELP LP eighty nine replacement lamp is three hundred thirty dollars, uh, an Epson branded one. I have been using a company called Pureland Supply for a long time, for at least two projectors. They have like sort of their carriers with a genuine Ostrom bulb inside of them. They cost about $135. Uh, a bit I had about reasonable. A, uh, More reasonable. Yeah. 
somewhat more affordable. Um, I had a smidge under 4,000 hours on the original bulb. The rating is about 3,500 hours. But when you look at the cost of bulbs over the life of a projector, we're talking about $675 in aftermarket bulbs. Uh, That would be $1,650 in factory bulbs if I'm looking at 20,000 hours of use. Shout out to Projector Central. Uh, they do a really nice job helping you find legit bulb suppliers. If you look up the bulb you need to buy for your projector, they probably have an entry and it lists uh, places that have it in stock and the ratings from Projector Central users, viewers, readers. Um, nice. I mentioned that because you don't want to spend $330 and get a fake bulb. So oh. I generally either buy my bulbs directly from Epson or I buy them from you know, Pureland Supply or a short list of places uh, just because nobody nobody wants to pay for rip-off prices. Yeah. No kidding. And that's a, just a good thing to remember if you are getting into the projector space and you plan to use it as a primary display with, you know, regular hours a day or per week. Uh, the lamp modules in bulb-based projectors are consumables. And it's good to be prepared, at least. Get your source for your next lamp ready to go and yeah. have that in in the pipeline, so to speak, before you need it. While we're on the subject of projectors, I was helping out a friend with a ceiling mount install for a new projector they were looking at. And it came down to, and this will be the same case for anybody doing something similar. We're talking about front projectors, not uh, ultra short throws. So these are typically placed much further away from the screen. And you have to keep in mind, if you're gonna do something like a ceiling mount, what is the optimal location in order to produce a perfectly rectangular picture without a lot of fussing around with uh, unwanted controls, so to speak, to help kind of correct that sort of thing, namely your keystone corrections. If you can avoid using those on any projector, you generally will always have a more detailed picture with the content you're looking at. And I will say right off the bat, the projector calculators you'll find on either the manufacturer's website or at a great resource like Projector Central. That is a wonderful starting point for just punching in the numbers. Specifically, you'll be focused on something like your particular screen size, uh, 100 inches, 120 inches, 150 inches, whatever it is. You put that in and you lock that figure with your particular projector and you click the ceiling button. And at that point, you have a nice relative uh, setup, a virtualized setup that you can then play with a little bit to get a feel for how far away or what is the ideal range for that particular projector uh, for the given screen size you're looking to do. And when considering those values and where to place that projector in the room, remember that everything is measured relative to the center of the lens itself. Don't forget to factor in the fact that the lens might not be in a relatively center position on the projector. Mm -hmm. It may be skewed to one side or the other. Always maddening. Yeah, a little bit. It can be if you're just going for that perfect center feed of a lens right to a screen, which is really what you're looking for. Right. Also keep in mind that having the projector closer to the screen is always going to result in a brighter picture. So if you're dealing with uh, even a, a slightly light challenged room, that's something good to keep in mind. If you can offset it to the closest position, you'll get a little extra pop out of that picture. And in this case, we were looking at something from Epson called the Home Cinema 3800, a pretty popular projector that's currently on sale uh, at about, I want to say, $1,300 on sale price and about $1,500 normally. 
It provides a little bit of vertical and horizontal lens shift. So that gives you some wiggle room if you don't get the yeah. projector in exactly the right spot or right on the center line. Uh, this allows you to then slide that picture around a perfectly rectangular square picture, so to speak, and slide that around a little bit uh, regardless where the projector might be actually placed if it's not perfectly set up center of the screen or wherever it needs to be. And that was something else I kind of picked up with the calculators like you have from Projector Central and directly from the manufacturer. It'll also tell you like how far away from the ceiling or how far mm -hmm. in space you will need to hang this projector. Can it be right on the ceiling surface itself uh, or not? Is the lens shift in any given direction going to be enough to compensate for what you have in mind versus where that projector is actually going to need to be? And in the case of that 3800, I was... Uh, a little surprised to see that it really would be best. Uh, it, its ideal position places it about 25 inches from the edge of the screen, uh, from the top edge of the screen with something like a hundred inch projector screen. I just want to take a moment, shout out that lens shift can be a real lifesaver. You know, we always avoid keystoning like the plague because it reduces sharpness, but lens shift, especially uh, if it's motorized and fairly easy to implement, will allow you to shift i think i've got the better part of three to four feet of vertical shift and a couple three feet in horizontal shift or range it's like you know 47 percent of the screen or 96 percent of the screen is, is oh. the horizontal and vertical ranges basically half the vertical height of the image or half the horizontal width of the image in this case because i have such a peculiar ceiling it's hanging on it allowed me to shift it over by like 18 inches, but still have it centered without any massive loss in light. One of the benefits of having a projector like yours, uh, the more premium projectors typically will offer a greater range of that lens shift function. Because effectively, once you get that projector hung up and it's shooting a rectangular picture at the wall or the right. screen or the wall that screen is on, uh, once that's done and that's using no keystone correction or any kind, just it's neutral way of hanging, then that's where you take that lens shift function then and slide the picture around to get it right where you want to on the screen. And keep in mind too, if you do use that to any extreme, be it horizontally or vertically, that is similar to using zoom on the lens to tighten the picture down uh, that will sacrifice some brightness in the image overall. Nice. It's sometimes just tough to know like, hey, I'm going to have to hang this projector much further down than I thought I would Right. versus like, oh, I since I'm only operating within about a two foot budget in terms of the distance the projector can be from the screen, it's just another thing I need to keep in mind in terms of just figuring out where the best place for it would be in the room. It's nice to have options. Yeah. Especially if it doesn't require you to like buy a completely different lens package, which is a super high-end projector thing that we will not discuss at this time. That's a little uh, tip action for those front <laughs> projector owners out there compared to the folks dealing with ultra short throw and the unique problems of them. And we'll Maybe get into that some other time. So St. Louis is a soccer town, I feel comfortable in saying. Oh. Uh, St. Louis City Soccer Club, they just opened up their new stadium, which is probably going to have the best food of any stadium on the planet because they've, they've gone to a, a, some really beloved local restaurants to provide the uh, food services there. I'm really kind of curious to get over there. Uh, and I mention all this because everywhere I go or everywhere I've been in the last couple of weeks, the World Cup has been on the television um, except for, I think there was a football game on at one place. Uh, 
having the Rams and the Cardinals having left St. Louis, there's a little bit of bitterness in the uh, in the sporting community. <laughs> um, but man, soccer is everywhere. And I was oh, laughing yeah. because. You know, you had the the title on this comp class plus live FIFA World Cup plus Dolby Vision, and I just remember laughing because I was having a conversation uh, about ESPN, which basically still uses 720p for their live sports ball events. It can be painful. Yeah, I found this Forbes this article different. <laughs> describing that. Yes, here in the U.S., you actually can get live. They're claiming live 4K match coverage as delivered in the Dolby, quote-unquote, premium HDR format, which is Dolby Vision. We hope. That kind of surprises me. Yeah, exactly. Okay, how are they doing that? Uh, Typically, that's not something I would have associated with a live broadcast, and they are claiming it will be some live content. Uh, If you happen to have the right equipment, which includes an X1 box, and I'm thinking you probably have to have some sort of a 4K subscription package to Comcast uh, or Xfinity. And in that case, if you have all of the above and a Dolby Vision compatible TV, you are going to see something, I think, very new and very unique, especially for live broadcast and it being in the Dolby Vision format. Of course, they are going to be broadcasting this in HDR10 as well. So it will be compatible with TVs that perhaps don't exactly support Dolby Vision, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm more curious just to see how much live content is actually being delivered in this format, or is it all of it, really? Uh, and is it actually live? That's the other big one for me. I, I have a feeling this is like <laughs> at least time delayed a little bit uh, to make the production of it in that format easier. Definitely sounds highly desirable either way. And I'm sure this is uh, also making acquaintances across the pond in the UK smile a little bit because they are enjoying a rather colorful and detailed HLG format from BBC's iPlayer video service. And uh, a calibrator I'm aware of in the UK named Phil Crawley, he actually tweeted out that he found, I believe it was the Brazil game, and the yellows in particular just stood out and it really made for a more lifelike viewing experience or more like looking through a window or actually kind of being there it's pretty cool yeah anything that gets i'm hoping this is all in 4k streaming but at least in a more colorful format be it the uh high dynamic range formats of either hlg or dolby vision they expect a billion people to turn into the final or to be watching the final or to watch the final totally it's just a massive, massive audience. I'm going to assume iPlayer is also like an app-based service as well. I should probably look that up. <laughs> YouTube TV also offers FIFA in 4K as well, but I'm not sure if I saw anything related to delivering an HDR format, at least HLG. Apparently, uh, the good folks at Xfinity slash Comcast have the exclusives for the Dolby Vision format, at least for FIFA. There you have it. I just hope this suddenly becomes a little more commonplace, seeing regular sporting matches slowly make that uh, upgrade to 4K. And ideally, the wider color palette HDR. available. Yeah, HDR. So better brightness detail and much better color. See, I think a lot of that has to do with the cost of the trucks and the cameras and stuff. Speaking of costs, Rob, you made an interesting point. If you really want a dumb TV... You can go out and buy a commercial display. Samsung, LG, Sony will put links in the show notes to their professional or commercial or business displays. Like Samsung calls them business displays. LG calls them commercial. Sony has their professional display, uh, 4K Bravias. You mentioned the upgrade you were doing to, I believe, your motor coach 
uh, or <laughs> the <laughs> Samsung trailer. panels you had for your trailer were actually business class displays. And that got me well, to just take yes, a, which I, I, a quick I, these look are used to and see they, what was they cost me like $50, you know, so there's, this was a, I hear you. This was a matter of convenience and anything will be better than the piece of trash that came with the, I, I, I've, I will, I will stop now because I think everybody's heard me go off in my ZOMG, you know, RV, AV equipment is the worst trash on the planet. <laughs> um, at least the stuff that comes from the factory. So I'll stop. But, but when you look at commercial displays, right, can you get HDR? Can you get all of the things we want so desperately for our home theater experience? I believe you can get anything you want. And that even includes rather expensive installations, something like LED signage style displays like Samsung's The Wall. Uh, they call that effectively a micro LED where they're actually using LEDs, uh, lots of them to create the picture that you'll see. And those can be scaled out rather large at least through LG and Samsung, in their commercial and business class displays. That includes things like what would be used at, say, a hotel or a hospitality suite where you need certain control over that TV to be able to lock it down appropriately uh, for the given use case. In addition to things like 8K displays, and the, you have, as far as I can tell, full performance and all of the current display technologies out there. It's what is the budget and what is the specific thing you're looking for. Uh, I imagine some of these technologies can get very expensive. If I needed a hotel TV or an interactive touch display for the classroom or just something that's literally digital signage. Uh, they had stuff at every price point and it's just kind of fun to take a look through some of that just to see what else is the quote unquote TV actually used for in business and and in education and, you know, retail or live events or what have you. There you have it. Yeah. Quick update. Uh, if you are a fan of Disney+, Plus, I will say I'm, I'm getting through the last bits of Andor, which has been really fascinating. I will also say also just as fascinating is the Marvel crew put together the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, which has a full 1970s Christmas special vibe going on, which I'm looking forward to watching. Especially since there is a musical element there Aww. from a band I am a big fan of. Um, but Disney Plus, uh, which has been growing like a weed, they are going to be delivering new prices when they bring in that Disney Plus Basic. Um, that's the ads. The, the Disney Plus Basic, 8 bucks a month. You get Disney Plus with ads. Uh, the Disney Plus Premium will be going from $7.99 a month, uh, $79.99 a year, to $10.99 a month and $109.99 a year. That's the one where you get no ads and you can download Disney Plus content on your device to watch it when you travel. So if you want a deal, uh, pay up for Disney Plus. Pay for your year in advance by December 7th. Otherwise, you'll be paying a significantly larger amount of money monthly or annually to get your Disney Plus going on. Indeed. You know, I look at Disney Plus uh, a lot of the way I look at HBO Max right now in that the back catalog on both of these streaming services is ridiculous and extraordinary. Totally. Take advantage of it while you can, people. Big shout out to all of our patrons. Uh, we've been going through and uh, we've been listing out some of our patrons. We basically started with our very, very first patron and we're working our way up to, uh, I suspect... Sometime in 2023, we'll have gotten through everybody. But, uh, <laughs> yes. A big shout out to coming sooner Bruno than later. Foley. Oh my goodness, James Wilmot, Melissa Fay, Age Dolls, and Nun, aka, well, you know who you are. 
There's a sandwich in your URL name. I'm just going to leave that there. That Keeping you secret since you have chosen none as your name. This is true. Big shout out to everybody who supports us. Uh, our patrons uh, get access to things like our hangouts and be able to message us directly on patreon.com slash avxl. We're working on some more perks for our patrons, but uh, seriously, you make it possible. You make it possible for Rob and I to, to put the time into this and to cover the costs of hosting and all that good stuff. And uh, we want to thank each and every one of you for being our patrons. Patreon.com slash avxl. Keep an eye there for the deets on our next hangout which will be thursday december 22nd and we'll get the time out to you although this last one where six pacific 9 p.m eastern worked out pretty well it did but uh keep us posted viewer questions uh laura balsam posted on patreon.com slash avxl what is the difference between dolby light and dolby dark the light one seems too bright the dark one seems too dark <laughs> would it be a good idea to use dolby light and lower the screen brightness I have a Sony A90J. Glad to hear that things have calmed down for you, and I look forward to future episodes. Laura. Thanks, Laura. And thank you. It's actually, things have things have stabilized a bit, which I appreciate. Um, Good We should probably talk about what Dolby Light and Dolby Dark is first. Yeah. Uh, are these presets? Effectively, on the TV, when you play Dolby Vision content, open up the menu and look at the picture settings, you'll have two different options for Dolby Vision. Uh, one labeled, I believe, just Dolby Vision Bright and Dolby Vision Dark. Dark is just too darn dark, uh, to be honest with you. In my opinion, <laughs> it practically crushes the dark detail to the point you can't see it. Those shadow details are, are just indistinguishable from pure black. Uh, however, bright, uh, as you mentioned, it might seem too bright, but it's the one that's going to give you the best detail, especially in the darker grays or in shadow detail. It will be more correct. And that is just kind of the way Sony has decided to do this, uh, actually to make a... a a quote-unquote darkroom preset that's too dark even for a pitch black room. I would say just stick to the bright setting. I would not recommend adjusting the screen brightness unless that would be the only thing I would adjust. Uh, I'd be hesitant to even touch it because even with HDR content on a TV like that, it's not as if everything is a solid white screen or just intense bright imagery constantly. One of the more common complaints I hear from Sony OLED owners, especially like you with your A90J, is that shadow details can and do look crushed. And the best way around that, at least for right now, unless you go with professional calibration, of course, which does really do a good job of fixing that particular issue, is to simply stick with the bright picture preset for your Dolby Vision content. Try not to lower the brightness, but if that's your only option, that would be the one I would suggest uh, doing to eye comfort and uh, enjoy. For any HDR TV, you should not be messing with contrast or brightness of the panel with that particular content. It should be already set to maximum and the, the whole video chain kind of depends on those settings being where they are by default. That's why I'm hesitant to say make any adjustments at all, even to brightness. But if you are gonna make a decision to uh, make that a little more eye friendly, uh, the brightness control or the OLED light level control on LG TVs is the one to adjust. <laughs> I'm hesitant to even say that. I'd rather people just stay away from it altogether. There you have it. Leave your OLED alone or leave your at least your <laughs> brightness setting alone for your HDR content. Anyway, done. Copy that. We got an email from Garrett. He says he has a 77-inch LG CX OLED TV and that the quality of the picture at night is great, but during the day you can see a constant reflection of the windows on the TV screen. 
curtains are not an option for Garrett, and he's, uh, well, quote, looking to replace it with an 85-inch TV that hopefully would have better anti-glare screen or maybe a brighter TV to fight the glare. Would that be a better solution? He's considering Samsung's QN900B or the Sony XR85X95K. Really enjoy the show. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, Garrett. Yeah, basically, you've, you've got brightness. You've got sophisticated screen coatings. Uh, or surfaces which work better the brighter the television is uh, or the more you can reduce the sun. What do you think? I think that those are two of the more expensive TVs on the planet right now. So the budget must be pretty (laughs) decent, especially for those screen sizes that Garrett mentioned. Both of the TVs have excellent and reflective screens, and it really becomes more of a question of some specific functionality. If you are a gamer, I would be more inclined to go with Samsung. They offer a superb gaming experience, including performance features that you may want on the TV of your choice for connecting one of the latest video game consoles out there. Another question would be, what operating system do you want on the TV? Would you prefer Google TV or Eisen OS? Do you even care? Uh, In which case, you could always go with a third-party box, be it like an Apple TV 4K or something like a Roku Ultra that you could just simply plug into one of the available ports on the TV and do it yourself. When it comes to the operating systems, I guess I would be more partial to Sony TVs, especially the out-of-the-box settings. Their attention to things like video enhancement and detail and providing very good processing overall. Uh, But there really is no wrong choice here. Those are two excellent, uh, arguably, the best LCD from either company for 2022. And if one was at a particularly better value than the other, I know for a fact, at least on Amazon, that QN900B, especially in the 85-inch size, that did not come down at all for Black Friday. It's over $5,000. It's like $5,500. Those are investments. Both of those TVs would be excellent choices. They both incorporate very effective anti-reflection screens that are able to deal with harsh room lighting or maybe a bright window in the background or two. I think it's more of a question on what you really plan to do with that TV most often. If you were a gamer, I'd be more inclined to get the 900B from Samsung. If you have a particular choice of operating system you would prefer to be on the TV, well, this will be a choice between Google TV or Tizen OS. I would say I'm probably more partial to Sony TVs for movie watching. But when it comes to any kind of gaming, I'm looking at a company like Samsung and a TV like the QN900B as a 8K display would be just glorious, especially at 85 inches where you can really start to appreciate that kind of a resolution. I think either one of these are going to look gorgeous. Oh, Uh, hell yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with either one of those. No, they both have similar brightness. They both deal with reflections nicely. Uh, It's just more of the certain features and your preferences that really come down to yeah, no, no bad choice at all with either one of those. We talked about outdoor TVs last week, specifically a television that was going to be outdoors. The person building the deck recommended the incredibly expensive weatherproof television. Uh, we talked about that extensively. We got a great email, uh, or I should say a post on patreon.com slash AVXL from Tom Kane. He says, regarding outdoor TVs, your answer, and honestly, this is Rob's answer, to just use a cheap TV is the right one. I live on Oracoke Island, North Carolina, part of the Cape Hatteras National Seashore. That's so cool. 
I've had an old Sony 720p TV out on my porch for nearly six years. The only time I take it down is for hurricanes. The humidity is high in the summer, and it has gotten wet many times. It just keeps on trucking. Whenever it finally craps out, I'll upgrade the bedroom TV and move the existing one to the porch. Um, having spent a fair amount of my adult life living near the beach <laughs> on the east coast and the west coast that's impressive because the air gets salty and everything that will disintegrate does so six years out on the porch is very very impressive tom thank you for taking the time to send us that info man those old sony tvs were tough as nails too and i assume the yeah. new ones aren't bad either but <laughs> There's more than a few old Sony televisions out there. Probably quite a few CRTs still in daily use. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a frightening thought. We got a great email from Jake. He emailed AskNavyXL.com. Uh, and he's he's looking to buy a new subwoofer. His Klipsch R112SW, quote, has a popping sound when doing large explosive or sci-fi spaceship sounds like the scene from the opening of the first Star Trek in the Kelvin time frame when Kirk's dad sacrifices himself to save the crew. It doesn't do this at any specific frequency or during music. So for music, this subwoofer is still okay, that old Klipsch. But when you get the big, moving a lot of air, boomy stuff, things go wrong. Jake goes on. I figured at first a larger subwoofer would solve this problem. However, after your talk on frequency response, I've been looking closer at that, not just that it can get low, but that it doesn't fall off a cliff. I noticed an anomaly when looking at that. Not only do the numbers suggest that the KEF KF92 goes lower than most other subwoofers in its price range, it also seems to have a smaller decibel range than many in its price range as well. The rating quoted from Crutchfield is 11 to 200 hertz, plus or minus 3 dB. So let's pause here for a second because there's a lot to go through here. That KEF uh, KF92 packs a pair of 230 millimeter, that's nine inch drivers, in a force canceling arrangement. That means basically the magnets are back to back, so they're centered on each other, firing in opposite directions. First time I saw that was from a German subwoofer about 20 years ago, and they were like, basically, they were like, it's not going to bounce around the floor. You can put your drink on it, it won't move. Each of the speaker is fed by a 500 watt amp. Uh, there's one for each driver, there's 1,000 watts of amplification in that box, and it's a fairly small box, like 14 by 14. 14 by 13, give or take. And they have KEF's Music Integrity Engine, essentially DSP sound processing. They call it Intelligent Bass Extension. And it optimizes the relationship between the amplifier drivers and cabinet while placement-dependent EQ allows for seamless integration in any room, which basically says yeah. we have smarts in this that tries to optimize the output from the subwoofer. Look, I'm obsessed with frequency response, especially on speakers. I want it as flat as possible. I want it to go as low as possible. Right. I honestly do not much care what subwoofers do. Somewhere about 120 hertz, a subwoofer is dead to me. No disrespect to the subwoofers. For a subwoofer, you're looking at sub-bass especially, like 20 to 60 hertz. And the low end of low bass, which is bass is like 60 to 250 hertz when you look at kind of a frequency chart. Here's where things get interesting. When you look at an equal loudness curve or contour, actually... Um, which started with audio research many, many years ago, which I'm not going to go too far into. Essentially, if you want to hear the same loudness with a pure steady tone, which I'm going to point out right now is not music or soundtrack, unless you listen to a lot of, I don't know, bells being played with one bell playing at a time. Essentially, pure steady tones, it's easier to hear differences in sound levels. 11 hertz to 200 hertz minus 3 dB is cool, but how loud is that minus 3 dB, right? I can have 11 to 200 hertz at 40 hertz. 
I could have 11 to 200 hertz at 90 hertz. I could have 11 to 200 hertz, you know, minus 3 dBi drops down 3 dB from its peak at 110 hertz, right? You need a lot more energy or decibels down low. If you're listening at 60 dB between 1,000 and 2,000 hertz, um, you need 80 dB at 100 hertz and 110 dB at 20 hertz for your ear to think that that level sounds the same. Essentially, your ear processes the audio at the very lowest frequencies, at the very highest frequencies, a little bit different from the bulk of what it hears in the middle frequencies. Right. This is a very long way of saying subwoofers need to play really, really loud to keep up with the rest of your systems. Kef basically says, we have sound pressure levels up to 110 dB. That's nice. But you don't really know 110 dB of what? 110 dB for a second, 110 dB at this frequency, 110 dB for the full range. CEA 2010 is probably the best way to compare subwoofers. So that is a spec from the Consumer Electronics Association. Um, it specifies how you measure subwoofer output at a bunch of different frequencies. And a bunch of industry experts, they sat down and they said, look, we need to get this whole subwoofer measurement thing under control. We need to look at the loudness at given frequencies and how much um, distortion is there. Are most manufacturers actually using CEA numbers in their marketing of their speakers? Is that like a normal thing usually? And in this case, it's well, just not there. And that's usually information you'll find. I assume... Since this is probably a pretty stringent test, and it may uh, <laughs> not every speaker is going to be proud to actually trumpet what their particular result is with CEA 2010. Curious now, how many well, I, are any companies actually? Shoe does. Oh, see, there Shoe you go. does. <laughs> Monolith does. Nice. RSL does. Um, okay. I don't know if SVS posts it on their website, but I don't think they are against it. Where you'll notice is there's people like uh, Brent Butterworth um, or Aaron's Audio Corner or a couple other places where they typically do CEA 2010 numbers for subwoofers. I would suggest that if a company never ever submits its products for reviews at those sites, and which they may not do simply because they're smaller or more obscure websites, um, right? You know, it may be because they don't particularly want the CEA 2010 number out there. But a lot, of, a lot of companies that are all about subwoofers, like the ones I were mentioning before, although RSL does speakers too, and Shoe does speakers too, and SVS does speakers too, but companies who their core competence is, is in building badass subwoofers are generally all about CEA 2010. Okay. Uh, or at least pretty cool about CEA 2010. If you're shopping then, for you personally, would and you were looking at a new subwoofer, would you just skip over anything that didn't present that information in an easy-to-find place right off the bat? <laughs> Well, I am a I am a nerd. Um, you know, I, I I became I became aware a long time ago that there are a lot of things that are called subwoofers that barely exist below sixty or eighty hertz. That can make a, a healthy difference in a very, very small bookshelf speaker. Totally. But when you want that intensity and, and let me let me say this flat out. Uh, there are musical subwoofers, you know, music basically stops around thirty hertz, right? And you generally, you know, don't get more your head feel. back by bass Yeah. Bass. yeah. Well, I just mean in terms of like there, there just aren't that many instruments, right? You know, if you're listening to obscure European church organs that go down to like 16 hertz, you know, because they have these massive pipes, that's one thing. But if you're talking about like an actual, the lowest sound of a typical instrument from a rock and roll or a jazz group, it's like low E on bass or B flat on a tuba, which is like 31 to 34 hertz. I prefer the bass response of my favorite, I don't know, say like Netflix Dolby yeah. Atmos track or something like that in a movie. Yeah. In movie content, you're going to feel it and hear it, especially in anything with explosions. Is. Yeah. The impactful sounds you know. or sound effects I yeah. see in content. And that's... 
or here. Yeah, and, and a, you know, I don't think you know. And the the thing is, is is there's kind of a three legged stool when you're looking at a enclosure for a subwoofer, right? You can have cheap, you can have big, you can have low. You generally, you know, don't get all three. You know, or maybe you can have small, you can have cheap, or you can have low frequencies, right? Generally speaking, uh, you know, unless you have a huge X max and an insane amount of power, you can't get very low frequencies out of a very small enclosure, at least not on high levels, just because the physics is working against you. Um, I would also want to point out is something about with that KF92 is I've seen a lot of places where they think it sounds great for music. Um, and especially music at reasonable volumes. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, a THX or Dolby response in a home theater, on a subwoofer, you want a pretty unreasonable amount of noise coming out of that subwoofer. Excuse me, sophisticated and highly, you know, nuanced, you know, low bass, right? But when you when you when you look at at specs for a subwoofer. You know, the CEA 2010 and having it at two meters, because some places listed at one meter, right? And the closer you get to the, the source, the louder it's going to be. But a CEA 2010 for two meters is kind of like the only way you can compare clean output across a bunch of different frequencies, right? Right. Um, something to think about, that KEF subwoofer, KF92, that's a $2,000 subwoofer. I don't think it's on sale right now. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go on sale anytime soon. And for the price of that $2,000 subwoofer, I could buy two or three subwoofers from SHU or SVS or RSL or Monolith. Maybe not, you know, there's, you know, biggest subwoofers, but two or three smaller subwoofers. Uh, right. Not that you need three subwoofers, but two can be nice for spreading out the sweet spot for the bass, right? Totally. The thing about this is two smaller woofers can behave like a larger woofer. Right, because you have increased air. I mean, basically, you move more air. But generally speaking, you cannot replace a big box with a small box unless you have massive X max or in and out movement of the woofer uh, and a huge amount of power to move that driver back and forth. For two thousand dollars, that KF KF ninety two really has to deliver. It's also you know fourteen by thirteen by fourteen inches. It's a very small enclosure. It's a very reasonable box to fit in your home. But you could buy a couple of subwoofers from any of a number of subwoofer manufacturers and have enough money left over to pay for several years of Disney and HBO Max uh, or Spotify or whatever it is. And I want you to think about that before you go out and spend $2,000 on a subwoofer. That's a lot of money for a subwoofer for the vast majority of people out there. That better be at least two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, two. I've seen... Two would be a good you know, number. If you're, well, there's also, with. you know, $2,000 subwoofers where it has two, you know, 15 or 18 inch drivers packed into a single enclosure, ah, right? They're well, beasts. Right. But if you're, if you need to move a lot of air because you're in a big room, that's, that's a way to do it. So hopefully I haven't gone on too long, Jake, but essentially, you know, that's a nice subwoofer. It's probably not the one I would pick for a home theater. I consider $2,000 a lot of money for a subwoofer, so I want it to have fantastic performance. And I would kill to see CEA 2010 numbers for that because you could compare it to your existing, like Klipsch R112SW, and even any of a number of other models from a number of other manufacturers out there. CEA 2010, because it specifies so many things, the methodology and how the information is reported, makes it a much more valuable tool for comparing different subwoofers. Sweet. 
you got uh, questions, follow-up questions, or you want me to, to explain that in more detail or, you know, want us to never cover that subject again, email ask at avxl.com or become a patron at patreon.com slash avxl and message us there. I need a second sub. <laughs> so I mentioned my, my current obsession with Andor and the peripheral, which may be the first property made from a William Gibson novel that doesn't make me cry. Except there's a, a campy one, but I won't get into like that movie to see with Tanner Reeves. You should watch that. You should get that. I also want to give a shout out, by the way, to the trailer for John Wick 4. I just want a list of the places they shot that movie because the sets, the, the places they're shooting are spectacular. Oh. Um, what are you listening to? What are you listening to? What are you listening to? Let's see. I'm st- actually, I'm kind of getting into Call of Duty Warzone 2.0. That is actually, <laughs> I have to say, I like the audio in this game. There is a home theater mode, and when I'm using my Ooh. headphones with that, it is beautifully directional, detailed, and it's fun. It's. I also realize it's been way too long since I've really uh, sat down to any kind of competitive first-person shooter game, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting my feet wet again. Anyway, one of my favorite bi-weekly podcasts or twice-weekly podcasts, depending on if I'm saying that properly, is on YouTube of all places. And it's Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast. And then later that week on Thursday, he has the Thursday Afternoon Podcast, a.k.a. the Just Before Friday Monday Morning Podcast. <laughs> and I adore his rants, his observations of things in the world, the interviews he's been getting into lately uh, with some great people and the humor overall. It's just, uh, it probably doesn't hurt. He's about our age. So it's very relatable to me, but he is, he, he does a quick and dirty podcast and it's, uh, it keeps me uh, a little more sane than not. Also, you know, he's got his movie coming up, old dads coming to theaters and the numerous Netflix specials. You may be familiar with him in terms of comedy work. Uh, in addition to a handful, uh, many movies he's actually starred in or co-starred in, uh, it's just a, it's a fun ride and it's just a, a little slice of what he's up to on a twice weekly basis. Usually I think they tied together and they'll bundle like the, the podcasts, uh, at the end of the week, so you get the first one and the second one if you missed it or whatever. But anyway, yeah, check out Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast. And I just saw a new one has been posted. That would have been, a, I guess, the equivalent of the Thursday Afternoon Podcast posted on Friday. So <laughs> I know he's under the weather. So uh, <laughs> it's probably why Feel he's better. a little behind. Yes. Anyway, I adore the guy. There you have it, people. Oh, my goodness. If you've got a question for us, email ask at avxl.com. Post on patreon.com slash avxl. One last thank you to all of our patrons. You make this show possible. December 22nd is going to be our next hangout. You gotta, if you want to tweet, Twitter's still going. Tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. And we'll catch you next week on avxl. <laughs>